I'm the lead pastor of Kingwood Church, but that's not really who I am, that's just what I do. What I want to do this morning is introduce you to who I am. So what I thought I would do is dress the way I did when Jesus found me. This is about how I looked in ninth grade, a little less of me. I can't get my hair to do what it did then, and I'm glad. If this was authentic, I would have a little alligator right here, but I don't. Any of you remember that? And some high tops, but I got low tops. But you get the point. To steal a line from Charles Dickens, if I were to describe my life to you, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. On the outside, our family was a picture of stability. We had a very uh, intact family. I went to the same school from the time I was in first grade till I graduated school in 12th grade. Shortly after my very first birthday, my mom and dad moved into the house that my mom still lives in. Just about a week after um, we had celebrated that birthday. So there was a lot of stability in my life on the outside. And then there was my childhood church. I grew up in a very strict and, um, well, legalistic church. We had two favorite messages. I remember them because they're embedded in my brain. One is, Jesus is coming tonight at midnight. And none of you are going. I remember that. The other one was the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And, and most of you have already done it. I don't know why you're still here. It was, it was tough. It was strict. I can remember we weren't allowed to, you know, uh, eat anything in church. So we took that to an extreme. We wouldn't even put a mint in our mouth. So I remember my mom, I'd be sitting there. She's trying to occupy me as a little kid. And she'd slide a little mint over to me. And then I'd reach down up under the pew and stick it in my mouth. And then sit up and look. See if anybody saw me. And every time I was getting out of line, the way my mom got me back in line was, the preacher's looking at you. He's going to see you. You better stop. Which really scared me because the preacher was my great-grandfather. Who was a big, tall man. Who died at 93 and pastored for 68 years. In our church, we knew what God didn't like. We just didn't know what God was like. And it was sort of a tough upbringing. I remember we had one of those attendance placards over here on this side. Remember that? A little guy would go up during one of the hymns and slide numbers over there. Everybody would look. And I can remember the day our church really celebrated. We had 40 people. 40! Wow, we had to go find the four. We didn't even know where it was. It's great. No one really ever missed a church service at our little church. I think they were just afraid they'd get talked about if they did. So they all kept showing up. And my childhood home was a paradox. I could tell you completely true stories 
that on the one hand would make you think that I had a, a great life. And they were all true. I could tell you other true stories that would make you think that I had a terrible life. And it wasn't that there weren't good times. There were good times. They just were so unpredictable. You never knew when one was coming. You never knew how long it was going to last. And you never knew when another one was going to come. It was the in-between the two. It wasn't the up or the down that got me. It was the in-between that kept tearing me in half. The unpredictable nature and volatility of my family kept chiseling away at me a little each day. I only have one sibling. I have a sister who's five and a half years older than I am. And that's me in her arms. She actually had a much harder life than I did. The, the overflow of our family and home um, really devastated her and it created a lot of anger in her. And her and I were really at odds our whole childhood till she moved out at 17 to escape. But my dad and I had a different relationship than she and my dad had. He was my hero. He was my absolute hero. I, when I thought about my dad, I thought about him with a big, white, shiny hat that never fell off. He, he, I adored the ground he walked on. I don't, I don't believe my mom, but she says when I was first delivered and my dad first saw me walk in the room and when I heard his voice, I smiled at him. I don't believe it. My dad worked on the Mississippi River on a dredge boat and he'd go away three or four days at a time and he'd be gone that amount of time, come home a couple of days, go back and work like that. And I just missed him so bad when he was gone. I remember one time I got uh, sick and I didn't eat for two days. And my mom took me to the doctor and the doctor analyzed me and checked everything there was to check. And he said, has there been any change in his life? And she just went through whatever she could think of. And my dad had gone and been gone for a particularly long time. And the doctor said, I've got the diagnosis. He's grieving. He misses his dad. And I did. I just wouldn't eat. I was sick. I was grieving. I missed him. He was a lone ranger to me. One night, while my dad was away, the phone rang. And I was standing. We only had one phone. Remember that? We had one phone with the big rotary dials on it. And it had its own table because it was special. With a little light on it and curtains you'd pull away. When I say the phone rang, that's what I mean. The phone rang. And I heard it echo through the house. And, and I just went in there. And I saw my mom pick the phone up. And, and I can't describe the terror that was on her face. She was afraid. She, was, uh, she started to cry. Her lip began to tremble. I can still see her face in my mind. And, and she, was, she hung the phone up and fell apart. And I said, Mama, what's wrong? I was about 10 years old. Mama, what's wrong? And she said, uh, your dad fell off the boat into the Mississippi River. And, and he got caught up under the paddle of the, of the uh, boat as it was pushing down the river. And, and he almost died, but two guys pulled him out. And, and, and I saw her just fall apart. And that just, like lightning, sent shockwaves through my tender little nerves. The thought that my hero just about died. What I didn't realize is it wouldn't be long he'd die a more painful death. My dad had a really hard life. He grew up poor. He was the son of a field worker. 
He picked cotton all of his childhood. That's him in the middle reaching over, not the shortest one, but in the back, petting their dog. All the stories you hear that we make fun of were true for him. He didn't drink his first Coca-Cola until he was 12. He used to walk uh, nearly two miles, he told me, on Saturday because there were some friends he knew from school that had a television. He would walk over and uh, watch cartoons. Where he grew up, there were um, he was the son of a field worker, so they just lived on some little shack on the edge of the field. There were holes in the floor, sometimes holes in the wall. They had no air conditioning. They had no heat. They had no electricity. They had no car. Uh, there they were with five kids, and they just worked the field. My dad quit school, and he was in ninth grade because they were too poor to buy shoes, and the other kids kept making fun of him, and he just couldn't deal with it anymore, so he quit. He had a life that was filled with pain and rejection. And that, and that unresolved pain poured over into our family. It, ju- it just bubbled over. There were so many wrong beliefs that were drilled into us every day. We were programmed and, and, uh, and brainwashed. And, and there were times I felt like I was losing myself. I didn't know who I was or what I thought or where I was going. It just echoed and echoed and echoed and echoed. He was filled with fear and paranoia. I remember so many times when we'd leave home, we'd always have to go around and unplug everything because he was convinced the house was going to burn down. And I still remember one of the strongest memories of my childhood and my life was the door, the front, the, the night, the front door was left unlocked all night. I mean, it's lucky somebody didn't come in and kill us all. It was, it was, it was, it was paranoia and, and fear and insecurity, and it, and it manifested itself in control. Uh, my dad had uh, a couple of forms of communication. I'm, I'm going to talk until you agree with me, and if you don't agree with me, I'm going to yell at you, and if you don't agree with me, I'm going to curse at you and condemn you. And I never saw anyone in my lifetime go past that. So I never knew what would happen next. By this time, my dad's white hat had begun to gray. I began to see some shadows. My mother, under the pressure of her own memories and the pressure of our home, sought medical help. And the best treatment that they thought of at the time was electric shock therapy. So they tried to fry her memory to try to erase the things that she was going through. When I was around 11, my grandfather died of cancer, her dad. And under the combined pain of his death and the turmoil in our home, it it, it just overwhelmed her. It was more than she could take. I remember the phone rang again, and this time my dad answered. And I came there and watched him, and he turned so serious and empty. His eyes looked empty. And he said, "Uh uh-huh, I understand, yes. And he hung the phone up. I said, Daddy, what's wrong? And he said, I got to go get your mom. I said, what what happened? And he said something to me you'll probably immediately understand. I didn't understand at that age. He said, your mom tried to do away with herself. I said, what what does that mean? He said, she was in Kmart and she had some antidepressants the doctor had given her. And she overdosed on them to try to kill herself. 
And the ambulance got to her. So one of the Kmart workers called and sent her by ambulance to the hospital. They pumped her stomach out to try to rescue her, and they did rescue her. By fifth grade, I was uh, angry, frustrated, and bottled up person. I had a temper that was passive-aggressive. I, I, I never picked any fights, hardly ever got in any fights. Turned my homework in, did what I was supposed to do, but I was like a ticking time bomb. When something would go wrong, I'd get so mad, I'd throw things and break things, and I would get so angry, I would lose my vision, I'd black out. I couldn't even see. The pressure was just bubbling up inside my life. My family's filled with unfaithfulness on both sides. There's deep emotional and verbal abuse. My sister's never recovered. She still lives a life of pain. By high school, that white hat had moved to black. And the image that I had of my dad as a childhood had died. About 15 years old, my life was empty. My mom had tried to teach me about having a relationship with God, but her Christianity had been weak, and she had tried to come through this struggle and grow herself. But she tried to teach. And I had some friends at the school I went to that started to reach out to me. And befriend me and invited me to church. And so I started going to church with them. And I, and I just came to a point that life had become such an empty, useless routine. That when I was 15 years old at 2 o'clock one morning on a Friday night. I knelt down in my living room. And I, I, don't, I, guess, I guess you would call it prayer. I just started to talk to God. And I said, God... If you're real, if you're as good as everybody says you are, I'm, I'm asking you to change my life. God, I want you to change me. I'm empty and I'm miserable. And if all there is to life is what I know, I don't know that I want to live anymore. And I'd lie to you if I told you that that minute I felt anything different. Nothing happened. I didn't feel any different. I didn't feel any relief. I went to bed that night empty. But the next morning I woke up. And I started to feel a little different. And the next day, different. And the next day, peace began to fill my life. And joy began to fill my mind. And my demeanor began to change. And I began to talk to God more and more. And my relationship with Him just began to take off. And I began to be hungry for Him and things about Him. And so I would go to church. I was just going on Sunday morning. I'd go Sunday night and Wednesday night and go to the men's meeting. I was just starving. I had found the most wonderful, fulfilling, joyful thing I'd ever known in my life. And my life began to take on so much Fullness. I don't know how else to say it. I was, I was, I might have been poor on the outside, but I was broke on the inside. And I began to feel rich on the inside. 
my life took on so much meaning and purpose and joy. And I didn't, I didn't do anything different. I stayed in school and kept doing homework and worked whatever job I had and lived in the same house and had the same family. But man, inside, things started to just change. Many months later, I was sitting in English class. Ninth grade English. The teacher had walked out of the room. And we were just playing this game, you know, this game you play that says, hey, let's guess what everybody's going to be when they grow up. And so we started, oh, so-and-so is going to be a policeman. Oh, yeah, I could, you know, that, I could see that. And this one's going to be a politician. And that one's going to be a teacher. And this one's going to be that. And then, and then the friend that really had reached out to me the most... In that moment, she turned and looked at me and said, Jay, I could see Jay, he's going to be a pastor. And everybody laughed. <laughs> and I laughed. And I thought, oh yeah, oh sure, oh, that's going to be the funniest thing. He's going to be a that funny and everybody laughed. And I laughed on the outside, but I don't know how to explain to you what happened to me on the inside. It was like, it was like when she spoke, God spoke. And those words, that voice penetrated into my very soul. And God said, this is me and I'm talking to you and I'm calling you in English. My Lord, if Jesus can speak in English, he can speak. He said, I'm calling you. I've put my hand on your life. And can I tell you, it felt like it might be fun to you. It was miserable to me. I hated it. Felt like the walls were rushing in on me. The air was being sucked out of my life. It was terrible. I was afraid. I panicked. I said, God, are you kidding me? I've searched all my life on how to deal with this emptiness. And now here I am at this point, And all you can do is put more responsibility on me. God, I don't want to be a pastor. I just want to be healed. I don't want to do anything like that. I just want to know you. And it, and it was frustrating for me. It was hard for me. And I battled with it. And I was tortured in my mind. And it was such a strange... It was like a movie clip. I was looking at the faces of everybody in the room laughing. And I was laughing. But inside, I was crying. It wasn't an honor to me. It terrified me. Never spoke in front of anybody in my life. Wouldn't even, didn't even speak in my own house hardly. I remember a few months later, I was at a church service and I was at the altar on a Sunday night and this lady came to me and said, I really feel like I have a word for you. And she began to speak maybe seven or eight sentences. This is what God says to you. This and 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 this. And I thought, you know, the church I grew up in, we didn't do that. And I thought, okay, you know, that's... Great, I'm not sure what it means. The next day, the best Christian friend I ever had in high school stood at lunch and said, uh, we did devotions at lunch, and she said, I just really felt strong last night that the Lord put this verse on my heart, and I want to share it. And that verse was almost word for word, frame by frame, the exact thing God had spoken to me through that other lady the night before. And it shocked me. I, went, I didn't know that was in the Bible. I thought, okay, God, okay. Then a few months later, uh, I was just so hungry for God. 
on weekends, we didn't have nothing to do. There was a revival out in some little church outside of Memphis where I was raised in the country. And we went out there and they were going to have a revival. So I went out there and we went out there and, you know, there we were. And the revival was happening and I don't remember who was preaching. I don't remember who was there. I don't even remember who went with me. I just remember we pulled up in a gravel driveway and walked out and got in the church and everything was going on. And God started speaking to me. And when that guy got up to preach, he tortured me. I'm, I'm telling you, he tortured me. Because everything that he said sounded to me like God's voice saying, I'm calling you. And, the, and I said, God, I just came out here. To, I mean, I could do a lot worse things on the weekend. I came to a revival. Leave me alone. And, 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 but, but he wouldn't. It, it's, like every, it's like in my mind there was this game going on where I was running from God and everywhere I'd run, it's like that preacher would jump out of a closet with a bicycle chain and just slash me with it. Shaw, you're called. And I can remember saying to God that night, okay, okay, Lord. I give up. I give in. I, I'll, I'll go into ministry on one condition. Please, please don't ever tell me again. It's too painful. I'll go. Lord, I'll go. And as my life began to progress, uh, months later, I preached my first sermon at the little church that I went to. I called the pastor, and I don't know why he let me preach. And that's the picture of it. It's my very first sermon. I preached on faith. Thank God. And I think I preached it out of them by the time we were done. <laughs> From there, all my spare time was invested in abandoning myself to what I thought God was doing in my life. So I did devotions, I did whatever I thought the Lord would have me to do. And then in 1990, I preached my first recorded sermon. From there, I went off to Southeastern and trained for ministry. And one fall break, I was home. And my dad and I had a, had a terrible confrontation. The worst confrontation of my life. And I don't know what happened, but we were at this point. We were butting heads on something. And, and um, I'd just been raised in that atmosphere. And I just decided that point... I'm just not going to back down this time. And I just kept, I just stayed in there with it. And something happened that I'd never seen in my life. He broke. 
and he started to cry. I'd never seen my dad break. Never seen him break since then. But in that one moment, he broke. And in that moment, I saw him different than I'd ever seen him in my life. I wasn't, I wasn't proud of him. I wasn't mad at him. He didn't have a white hat on or a black hat on. He just had a little boy's hat on. And I saw into the painfulness of his own life and the rejection that he had suffered. And he had never allowed God to heal him. And I slipped up behind him and I put my arms around him and I hugged him and I said, Dad, I love you. I just love you. In that moment, I didn't feel any tension. I just felt pity. And that's the clearest, deepest window into my dad's life I've ever had to this day. From there, as I look back over my life, there were two people in the Bible that I always identified with. One was Timothy. Paul told Timothy, Timothy, the faith that first lived in your grandmother and then lived in your mother and now lives in you. It's another character in the scripture always identified with King David. He was the last one that you would have picked. He didn't have the credentials. He didn't have the background. He didn't have what anybody... He wasn't as tall as the last king. He was too short, maybe too weak. He wasn't anything that you would have chosen, that Samuel would have chosen to be the king. All David had going for him was his relationship with God. He didn't have anything else. And I've identified with him so much. I feel that way. 1 Samuel 17, 37 says, The Lord who delivered me from the bear and delivered me from the lion will deliver the Philistine into my hands. And I felt that way all my life. The Lord who took me through that at 16 and took me through that at 17 and took me through that at 20 and took me through that at 25 and took me through that at 30 is going to take me through this. And that's where David's confidence came from. So many of your lives, I don't know, may, I don't know where you come from or what your history's like, but maybe your life would have been very similar whether you met Jesus or not in a lot of ways. I mean, you may have lived in the same house. You may have married the same person. You may have the same job. I don't know. But not me. Everything changed. Everything. If I hadn't met Jesus, I'd have never met you. I'd have never left Memphis. I'd have never gone to college. I was the first male in my family to graduate high school. The first person in my family to go to and graduate college. Everything about my life changed. And that included somewhere in my first year of college meeting a special lady. 50 feet from the place that Ron and Glenda met, my wife's father and mother, Stacy, and I met. And I had this idea. Of what I thought a pastor's wife ought to be about. I was one of the stupid ones. I, you know. 
I thought they had to play a piano and all that and run, run the certain ministries and do certain things and, and, and be very conservative and homely. She just didn't fit. And I saw her, and she was around that light pole where we met. And I went out there with a bunch of friends I knew. She was there with friends she knew. And we stood around that light pole and talked till everybody left. Four and a half hours. And we talked and talked. And she wasn't what I thought I was looking for. But the longer I talked to her, I loved to talk to her. And she and I became best friends. And she's still my best friend. And I realized when God brought her into my life that she was exactly what I was looking for. I was just too dumb to know it. And so that part of my life began to advance. Stacy and I had only been married about uh, two years. And we were, had just moved to Florida and were youth pastors there. And um, Stacy's mom was sick. Many of you know her story. She was really sick in those days. They were struggling. And so Stacy and I, every chance we got, would go and be with her dad just to, just to be there. We didn't live all that far away. And so this weekend, I think we had met in Dothan, Alabama, to see Tiffany sing an all-state choir. Remember that? And so Stacy went back home with her dad and I went back to Florida to do some things and I was going to meet him the next day here in Birmingham. And uh, we were going to spend our anniversary, I think it's our second anniversary we are going to spend here that summer uh, with her dad and, and mom. And that night on the way home, the Lord spoke to me. He spoke to me and began to say things to me that shocked me. Just in the car by myself, driving home down the road. And it was so profound, I went home that night and wrote it down. July 27th, 1995, 12.40 a.m. On the way home tonight, I believe God impressed two things on my heart. First, that Stacy and I would leave Niceville one day... And go to another church and senior pastor. And the other thing is that one day that her dad Ron would retire. And that we would move to Alabaster and follow in his place. 1995. The next day we came up and joined. Um, I joined them. And Ron said, let's go over and look at the new property. We're just building a, a daycare facility. I said, okay, well, let's go over and look. We stepped out of the car. And when our foot hit the ground, it, it, it was like I was overwhelmed. He was showing where everything was going to be. <laughs> Stacy was there going, yeah, that's great. And here I was, I felt like I was back in ninth grade English class. We were all smiling on the outside. But God spoke to me again. 
Today I joined Stacy and Ron in Birmingham. Ron took us by to show us the foundation of the new daycare. When we pulled on the property, I began feeling strange. By the time we got out of the car, I was completely overwhelmed. I was sick, weak. I thought I was going to pass out. It was like I was ripped up between two dimensions. I was trapped between what God was telling me and my inability to share it with anybody else. I believe God was telling me that one day he was confirming again, as he did the night before, that he was going to move us here one day. I felt so strong that I wasn't supposed... God just said to me, don't tell anybody. Well, I didn't know what that meant. But I thought the best thing to do would be to tell it, take it literally. This is the first time that Ron and Suzanne and Jeremy and Tiffany have ever heard this story. Three months ago, I told Stacy, And by God's grace, I stand before you today. And what was spoken by the word of the Lord 15 years ago has come to pass.